Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I bet that you didn't know that the first rooftop array in the world was installed in Manhattan. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey there, solar warriors, and welcome to episode 44 of Suncast. I am your host, Nico Johnson, and I'm so, so glad that you're here with me again this week. We're back with another edition of the Solar Pioneers series. And today's guest hails from the East Coast of the United States. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, Nico. Are you telling me that all the Solar Pioneers aren't from California? Well, not all of them, my friend. And back in the 70s and 80s, there were a number of companies in and around the D.C. area and certainly many more in the off-grid and the home power markets of the rural Northeast that were quite innovative. Among them, SolarX, which is a company we've mentioned in the show before. Some of our uh, show alumni were also SolarX employees. Today's guest was one of the early employees at SolarX. Mr. Tony Clifford and I first became acquainted back in 2010. Tony was then the CEO of Standard Solar, a company he continues to lead today and was interested he was in a commercial solar product that I was responsible for selling. I met him just as they were beginning to move more fully into being a commercial uh, solar company. They're one of the leading installers in the U.S. Eastern region. And I've had the pleasure of watching Standard Solar indeed become one of the fastest growing and important commercial solar companies, not just in the Northeast region, but now with an established presence across the U.S. And, and we'll get into much more detail today about how exactly they've grown and uh, some of the exciting news this year about uh, their continued expansion. In today's episode, Tony and I discuss in detail what it looks like to work for a company like SolarX way back in the 70s. What Tony believes are the fundamentals or bellwether signs, if you will, of a maturing industry and where he sees solar along that curve. What key employee characteristics he looks for when he's hiring into such a fast-growing company. You know, we get into the acquisition that I hinted to before of Standard Solar by a very prominent Canadian utility company, and what that means not just for Standard, but for their customers and industry partners, how they might do it differently than some of the other companies that have had the, uh, the privilege before them of growing into national footprint. Tony's thoughts on the next five years ahead for the solar industry. We had a fun hot or not segment, including Tony's thoughts on topics from distributed storage, which he's very hot on, to the Section 201 trade case with Suniva, and you'll want to stay tuned because he has some very specific thoughts on that topic. And of course, we get into key lessons and advice gleaned from his 30-plus years, not just in solar, but in scaling effective startup companies. I hope that some of this resonates with you. 
I'd love to know what other problems or roadblocks we can help you remove in your daily work or your personal life. Would you please reach out to me and let me know offline, online, doesn't matter. I want to know how we at Suncast or how I can help you even personally. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to Solar Power International 2017 in Vegas, I would love to meet you. If you want to meet up with me, reach out. You can do so through LinkedIn and other sources. I'm thinking maybe we should do a Suncast meetup somewhere, kind of like the LAXA events that we did a couple of years ago. It's been a while since we've rallied everyone together. I'm not sure if it'll be a LATAM-focused meetup or just you know getting the Suncast listener community together, but let me know what you want. As always, I'll be recording on-site at SPI this year, so if you have someone or something that you think should be on Suncast, if you want to set up an interview with me for your CEO or, uh, or your startup, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn message, or even just pop over to the website. Leave me a quick voicemail right from your smartphone. That website is mysuncast.com, and the email is nico at mysuncast.com. One last thing, I am always grateful for those who choose to collaborate with Suncast. And this episode is brought to you again in partnership with SoulRates.com. Several of you guys have reached out and asked for a free code to access SoulRates, the fast and free online platform for providing commercial customers with credible lease financing proposals. If you have projects over 100000 in value and you'd like to see how SoulRates can work for your company to make quick and easy financing proposals to your customers. Please reach out to me directly for an invitation code to join the platform. Oh, did I mention it's free? Okay, here we go. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. I think that you're in for a treat. So enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Tony Clifford of Standard Solar. Since 2007, our guest this week has led one of the country's uh, leading resident commercial solar installers. And maybe it's prior to 2007 that we'll start our story, but certainly I've had the pleasure of meeting and spending time with and getting to know Mr. Tony Clifford through his experience with Standard Solar, which is one of the rapidly growing nationally known PV developers in the Northeast. And Tony has had a career that spans now uh, not just the last 17 years of boom in the U.S. Uh, solar industry, but back into the Reagan and even Carter eras with companies like SolarX and BP, and we'll get into that. Throughout his career, he served as CEO and CFO of high-growth technology companies, and I'm excited today to hear his perspective, not just as a leader, but as an elected uh, servant, if you will, an elected board member for industry uh, associations like SIA, and as an industry advocate. We've got Tony Clifford from Standard Solar on the show today. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Hey, Nico, thank you for having me. And it's great to uh, sit down and, uh, I guess, reminisce for starters on where I've been because I have been in a bunch of different places. Yeah, and for me, you know, it's a lot of people talk about Solar Pioneers and how it kind of was birthed, if you will, in maybe in Humboldt County in California, and they and they discount the number of folks on the eastern United States. So I'm actually excited to have an East Coast Solar Pioneer on Suncast. This is going to be fun. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the Reagan and even the Carter administration. Actually, my first go round in solar began in the summer of 1975. 
during Jerry Ford's administration. So I've been back there a while. I got my MBA at the Darden School, you know, in the summer of the spring of uh, 75. And my first job was as assistant to the president of Solarex Corporation. Now, Solarex was the first company in the world organized to manufacture and commercialize PV for terrestrial applications. You know, back in those days, I, I'd say I was concerned about air quality and power plant emissions, but I didn't get into solar because of any high-minded environmental aspirations. I mean, who mm -hmm. knew about global warming in 1975? I just wanted to get back to the D.C. area. And the job <laughs> offers I had coming out of school were in New York, Chicago, Indianapolis, and, you know, places where, let's say, MBAs were a lot more valued than they were in uh, D.C. in the mid-'70s. Yeah. But uh, one of my professors in B-School, his uh, cousin had just started this uh, photovoltaics company. And I'll tell you, I mean, I think I knew what the photovoltaic effect was, but that was about it. And so I went up and interviewed with him. And he was a very interesting Ph.D. physicist from Hungary named Joseph Lindmeier. And he had, was the head of the physics labs at CompSat Labs. So he did all of this stuff for space cells. He had a background in semiconductors, and he was also a very sly, smart guy. He made all these incremental improvements and didn't announce them until he improved the efficiency by 50%. Then he announced wow. it. So, boom, international reputation, stays at CompSat a couple more years, and then finds a little bit of uh, private investment capital and started SolarX. So, you know, it was early, early days. And, you know, the main... The main customer in the mid-late 70s uh, was the Department of Energy, which funded solar demonstration projects in many sections of the country, especially mm -hmm. for entities that had relationships with powerful senators and congressmen. And, you know, one good example of, of a powerful relationship was, I know in 1979 or 80, I was working with the, the office of the president at Georgetown University, because we wanted to put together this thing to do a... Uh, a solar project at Georgetown. So right. I work on this. I put together a pretty good proposal. And we go in to see the president of Georgetown, Father Healy. And he says, fine, I'll show it to my tennis partner. I'm thinking, tennis partner? His tennis partner was Tip O'Neill, then the Speaker of the oh. House. Three, four months later, there's a line item in the DOE budget, you know, demonstration project at Georgetown University. And that's where a lot of things went. Now, I think that the... One of the serious commercial markets at the time were people growing marijuana in Northern California and Southern Oregon. Yep. And they powered small irrigation systems and intrusion detection systems in pot fields they were growing in public lands. Now, we didn't know this directly, at least for a while, but I got a phone call, I don't know, sometime in 77 maybe or 78 from the California Highway Patrol asking me if I would tell them who we sold. You know, we, he gave me the serial numbers. And I said, well, I can't tell you because we sell through distributors. And that was right. the end of it. But that's when I first realized that there was a, a bustling commercial market and all the stuff we were selling to this distributor in California was going to some pretty interesting places. That's really, that's really fun. Uh, we'll leave the distributor's name out for the sake of anonymity for, for this conversation. Right, since they've been around at least until a couple of years ago. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, you know, I'm actually I'm having a separate conversation upcoming with uh, Jeff Spees, and this is kind of his wheelhouse. He's been, you know, hanging out with a lot of these solar pioneers from, in particular, from that area of the country, uh, who themselves were really developing solar to power those types of operations. 
So it's it's fun to hear from someone on the East Coast who had that experience as a part of their background. Was and I presume you said this is your first job out of grad school. Out of grad uh, school, so, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. That's remarkable. And the power, of course, of uh, of network, right? A lot of folks say. When you go get an MBA, it's not really necessarily what you learn, but the connections you make. Yeah, I mean, I had great job offers in a variety of places, but, you know, I wanted to get back to D.C. Yes, there was a woman involved. I ended up not marrying her, but she was one of the reasons I wanted to get back to D.C. And so that's how I ended up here. But I found the job through my uh, my B-School, uh, one of my B-School professors. Very, very cool. Well, you know, SolarX famously went on to uh, become Amico and uh, was acquired by BP. How long did you stick around at BP? Uh, less than maybe it was a total of a year or so, but it it really wasn't that long because you know I mean I'd been at at SolarX for about six years at that point, going on seven. I can't remember exactly when I left, but it was like the end of sometime in '81, and um, you know it was really fun growing the business. When I got there, we had about a dozen employees. When I left, we were pushing two hundred, and you know I started out as the assistant to the president and. But I was the first person with a degree, an advanced degree in something other than the physical sciences, like physics wow. or chemistry. So Amazing. I did finance. I did business development. I did a lot of lobbying. I mean, I had a great job. I wrote the press releases. I mean, it was just, it was just a ball. It was absolutely Phenomenal. a ball. But then, you know, when you, when you get involved with a big – we were a big, a relatively big company by that point. But when you get involved with a huge company, you know, the nature of the game changes a lot. And I was sort of um, smitten by the, you know, uh, the fun of creating a small business at that point. So I, th right. I just knew it was time to leave. Got it. And then did you have prospects? You already had decided to go off and start a small business or you were going well, off to – Well, I had decided that – I wanted to, you know, it, it was at, right after uh, President Reagan had, uh, you know, eliminated for all practical purposes the DOE budget for solar. He'd reduced it substantially. Sounds familiar. And so I was thinking, well, what can I, what can I do that makes sense here? And I had a lot of friends at DOE, and one of the things that I managed to do was get a contract to um, – write a book, and it was mainly focused at, at, at alcohol, because alcohol, gasohol, still had very attractive incentives. And it was, you know, the, my pitch was, I was going to write a book, well, we called it Tax Advantaged Investments in Renewable Energy. It was basically, you know, how to structure your deal as a tax shelter, uh, mm -hmm. is what it was. And it, it's pretty, we didn't have power purchase agreements in the sense, but, you know, they had R&D tax credits. They had tax credits for, uh, I mean, uh, production credits for alcohol plants. So you could make sense out of, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in a book like that. So I did yeah. that, and that gave me the ability to find clients because they were trying to find me. And mm -hmm. I actually, I, I started a consulting firm called Biosynthetics because I was trying to stay in the, uh, you know, the renewable energy business. And uh, I had a partner who was a chemical engineer, and we did a lot of economic work and engineering design work for, uh, for uh, you know, for, for companies that were looking to build alcohol plants in the Midwest, in California. And it was a good run. And I branched from that into doing R&D limited partnerships, some real estate deals. And, you know, that's sort of what I did for about five years. And then I got back into the small technology business in like 1986 right. or 87 because the Tax Reform Act was passed in 86. 
In the 80s and 90s, you were involved in uh, in 80s and 90s, I was involved in a few different companies, a couple of which we grew, um, you know, to the point where we could sell them. And I mean, that was a, a big deal. I mean, one of the ones that I did was a optical drive, an optical data storage company. And I was working for a company, that, a startup that was developing a type of optical media, but I wanted to buy a drive company. And I couldn't, I found one I wanted to buy. I couldn't convince our VC investors to buy it. So me and the president did a leverage buyout. It was then part of a division of a Japanese company. Wow. And we um, got some Japanese funny money. In those days, you know, you could get bank loans in Japan for just a couple of, a couple of percent uh, interest. And that's wow. an era when interest rates in the United States were substantially higher. So we bought the company for very little money, which I, ra I, mean, I raised the money. I think it was half a million dollars. And I think about $18 million in, in debt to the Japanese. After the, uh, your experience through the high-tech growth boom of, uh, of 80s and 90s, something drew you back into solar. As I recall, it was the early 2000s. Well, it was 2005, and I had, uh, I had sold a business, and I'd helped a buddy sell a business that I got a fee for. And I took some time off, and I was thinking, what do I want to do next? And oil hit 65 bucks a barrel on the way up, and I thought to myself, well, what, maybe I should take another look at solar. And I didn't know much. I mean, I had not been keeping up with solar at that point in time, but it certainly was a... You know, I had a lot of affection for it. It was, you know, a great first job that I had. I really enjoyed what I was doing then. And so I took a look at solar, and I called up two longtime friends who were still involved in one way or another in solar. One is Scott Sklar, who's a consultant here in town. He was the uh, director of SIA in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, a couple before Roan Rash. And I called up Dennis Hayes, who was the original organizer of Earth Day back in the, in the early 70s. And we just remained friends over the decades. And I said, look, I'd really like to get back into solar. If you can find me a company either in San Francisco or the DC area, that's what I said. And uh, uh, Scott Sklar hooked me up with uh, Neville Williams, who was the founder of Standard Solar. And it was here in Rockville. And I was actually living in Potomac, which is next door to Rockville at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got back to Standard Solar. That's how I got to Standard Solar. And back into solar. So you at this time had taken the 20-year hiatus from the solar industry. I'd love your perspective on the contrast from those early days at SolarX to what was Burge, what was becoming, at that time, was now moving out of a cottage industry, serving the, the pot industry and, and the, ex, the extraterrestrial industry, and it had very much begun to become a viable industry in home power and was beginning to find some scale with business and utility. How do you characterize the contrast of those two and, and what you saw uh, that, that made you say, yep, let's go, let's jump on the standard? Okay, well, yeah, I would agree with you that uh, solar industry, solar energy, I wouldn't even characterize it as a cottage industry when I got started in it. You know, I mean, it was, it was really young, but I think I knew in an academic sense fairly early on that PV had the potential to scale. And I remember that in those days, semiconductors were the leading tech industry in the country. And when I started B-School in 73, you know, a simple six-function calculator cost over $100. Yeah. And I graduated two years later, and Texas Instrument calculators were selling for $9.99. <laughs> and this was mainly a function of... Uh, 
you know, increasing production volumes. That was a, a lot of it. And, you know, I, I remember the first time I testified on Capitol Hill, it was in front of the Joint Economic Committee, and I was talking about applying lessons learned in business school about how across multiple industries significant price drops had occurred as manufacturing volumes doubled. And these right. were known as industrial experience curves, and they had just been getting popular in the early 70s because of some work the Boston Consulting Group did. And I think my boss and I were the first ones to promote this to show that it could happen in PV. So one of the things that was going on by the time I got back, back was solar was getting you know, f much further down the industrial experience curve than they were you know, 25, 30 years previously. And uh, that sort of uh, heartened, you know, made me feel better about solar. It was still a tiny industry 10 years ago. And, yeah. you know, it, it has changed dramatically since then. But, uh, you know, I think we've still got a long ways to go. I would characterize solar now as an adolescent industry. And, you know, we've got some growth phases we've got to get through if we're ever going to get to the mature industry stage, which is where, you know, semiconductors and um, computers and things like that are now. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think it's very interesting. One of the things that I'm very heartened by is a migration in the C-suite towards a less gender biased uh, mixture, right? Yeah. To put it lightly. And, uh, you know, you guys uh, on the committee for SIA have been leaders in helping drive that forward by, by placing, by selecting a very well-qualified uh, female leader for SIA after many, many years of male leadership. And uh, I just recently had uh, Jing... Tian, the, the now president of Trina Americas on, I see more mature industries, you know, notably the president of the, the head of Pepsi company is female, right? Like, I think that's one of the bellwethers for me of an industry beginning to, at least in the 21st century, beginning to mature. I, I love hearing your perspective, though, on what other milestones might we see as the industry matures for, for solar that perhaps are telltale in other industries? Yeah, well, I think one of the things, and, and I would agree with you, first of all, on, you know, you mentioned SIA, and I was on the uh, search committee to find Roan's replacement. And I'd actually known Abby for a long time, and I'd recommended her. And, you know, granted, she's a woman. That's not why we picked her. We picked her because she was mm -hmm. the best qualified person for the job. And, oh, by well, the way, stated. she happened to be a woman, which was great. And I think Abby is doing a terrific job. Now, in terms of other things that I think we're going to have to see is, one of the things is, in a manufacturing sense, you know, the... Solar manufacturing or PV manufacturing, in order to be truly economic, has to be done on a global scale. And, yep. you know, I think that uh, 10 years ago, there were three or 400, you know, manufacturing companies worldwide. And when you look at a mature industry, again, say, you know, hard drives or semiconductors, you've got eight or 10 or 12 companies involved in the business. And uh, only, um, I mean seven or eight of them are doing about 80% of the business and the others are niche players. We're nowhere right. near that in solar yet. So I think we've right. got to see some real increasing concentration there just in terms of manufacturing. And, you know, some of that is going to be done at the expense of a lot of manufacturers and other mm -hmm. people as well. We've seen, you know, business models change dramatically, but um, the one thing you've got to have in manufacturing is scale. And that's, yeah. that's certainly a big one. Absolutely. And uh, nowhere is this being more... Is this more pressing than right now in the United States with not just the current administration, but some of the current policies that are being noodled? Right. And I'd cer yeah, certainly, I think we'll have an, an opportunity to dive into that. I don't want to get into it just yet. 
Uh, but I completely agree with you. Yeah, another one that I would talk about then and in terms of something that, that is starting that we have to see more of is, um, you know, financing. I mean, more acceptable uh, ways to finance solar projects. And, you know, we've tried this with securitized things in the past. And, you know, we've got still have a ways to go before we uh, before financing your solar system is uh, is an easy to do thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's going to come with time. I think we're on the right track there. But, we, you know, we still have a ways to go in terms of what we do about financing solar projects. And I would say that on the residential scale, the DG scale, where standard solar mainly operates. And uh, I guess to a lesser extent on, uh, on utility scale, because there you're dealing with... Um, Oh, very large institutions, uh, and a lot of them are, you know, one way or another being financed by uh, utilities, or you've got a power purchase agreement with, uh, with a company that for certain is, is going to be around in the next 20 years because they're passing everything through to their rate base anyway. So that's yeah. going to take some time, too. Yeah, exactly. The underwriting process for solar hasn't quite gotten to the point where, where finance is as comfortable with the, with the CNI market and the residential market as they as they have with utilities. So I agree with you there. So consolidation of manufacturing and easy to deploy financing. Anything else that you'd say is a bellwether to an industry that has become more mature? Uh, I, I, yeah, I think those are the two main things that, that just sort of just, that are front of mind would be those two. I think, well, there, there's probably is one more. If you look at um, a lot of industries in this country uh, they are, they have a very well-financed uh, uh, industry organization that most people in the industry belong to. And you can look at, you know, some things that are semi-solar related would be things like roofing companies. I mean, mm -hmm. the National yeah. Roofing Organization, virtually everybody belongs to that. Uh, That's right. Various... Uh, uh, sort of like electrician groups, whether they're, you know, union or non-union, they all belong to, to organizations that promote their industry. And then you look at solar, and I think this is, again, a function of, a, of an adolescent uh, industry. They haven't gotten the message the way, say, the, the oil and gas industry has, where, you know, everybody that's in that industry over a certain pay level you know, makes a donation to their to API, the American Petroleum Institute, or the you know whatever it is that they do that. And you know, right now, SIA has about a thousand uh, members, and there are more than eight thousand solar companies in the United States. Mm -hmm. So, and I think in order to sort of um, do something, we've got to get do something more. We've got to get that up there. And when I what brings that to front of mind is the uh, the current trade case. When you look yep. at the trade case, you know you've got uh, actually the, the the two companies that are doing this. I mean, they got their financing. Uh, well, I don't want to get into the details, but they got their their four million plus of initial financing to prosecute the trade case from the subsidiary of one of the. Uh, of the original company, uh, Cineva, their debtor in possession. And mm. SIA, you know, doesn't have that much money in total to fight the right, trade about, case. Yeah, that's about what SIA makes just on one uh, SPI. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, which, which, which is not even all of SIA's money. It goes to SIA. No, no, no. I mean, right. the SIA does a lot of stuff other than just... Uh, uh, worry about the trade case, and about it, you know yeah. the. But but you know a lot of the money 
comes from the people, the companies that are big enough to pony up uh, $150,000 for a board seat. I mean, I'm lucky to be, uh, I guess I'm lucky. I'm lucky to be uh, a member of the board, but I'm elected. I'm elected by the people in the DG division. And uh, I didn't, you know, Standard Solar pays their pro rata share, but it's not 150,000 bucks a year. But we need more people stepping up at lower levels because, you know, our industry and our jobs depend on it. That is prescient. And for those who are unfamiliar or haven't had a chance to read it, uh, Tony just recently published a three-part series of Solar Power on uh, an online magazine. I'll link to it in the show notes that really goes into his passionate perspective on the current Suniva uh, trade case. It's one that is very pressing uh, in terms of uh, front. It should be front of mind for everyone in the U.S. industry and probably everyone globally if they're uh, actively involved in some in, in touching the industry in a way that is meaningful because it's, it is going to ripple out through the industry. So I, I would encourage folks to go and read that. Uh, and Tony, I completely agree with you. The advocacy, this is one of the things that we try to do from perspective of, uh, I guess, journalism, if you will, on Suncast is try to extrapolate lessons, uh, not, not only apply to entrepreneurs, but you know, we started kind of only focused on Latin America as an in, as a sector, and there's a lot that the Latin America industry is still in, you know, literally in diapers, trying to figure out as an industry that they could learn from the U.S. and from Europe. Uh, and one of these is these associations, and, and Mexico has a great association. But I'm glad that you provide that perspective because even as mature as the industry and adolescence right now in the U.S. as you put it has gotten, there are so many things we could be doing better. And to be honest, I don't know. I don't know anyone in, uh, you know, sort of my age or younger in the industry, you know, mid 30s to 20s, who is contributing to SIA. I can't think of a way that SIA has engaged me as an active member for more than a decade to be a contributing member of SIA. And that that alone for me is a is a uh, is a failure that we need to probably address uh, because that probably would contribute to SIA. Uh, if it were something that was easily presented to me. And I would encourage those of you who are listening, uh, we can have a real voice in what's happening right now at a policy level. We do have a real voice. And we're actively um, moving the needle, and every every dollar, every penny counts. Um, so I appreciate that perspective, Tony. Well, thank you. And I guess the one thing I would say is that, you know, we, we when we did the, uh, the uh, extension of the investment tax credit in 2015, I mean, SIA went out and recruited a bunch of money, went into debt. I mean, they, they have reserves, but they wow. brought down their reserves quite a bit to get the ITC extended. And some of the stuff that really helped there was the fact that uh, people, individual people in states where there was a lot of solar, in congressional districts where there was a lot mm-hmm. of solar, like the, you know, the Central Valley in California and in North Carolina that were Republican areas, they went to their legislatures, they went to their senators and their congressmen and everyone else and said, we need this. We yeah. absolutely need this. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you, it also helped that SIA hired a, uh, a great Republican lobbyist, former Senator Trent Lott, to lobby his... Um, his uh, fellow senators about mm-hmm. the need for the extension of the tax credit. And it was re- very good that um, uh, Stion had a 700-person advanced manufacturing facility in Mississippi that uh, Senator Lott could go visit and um, basically get excited about solar because he clearly was, and he clearly yeah. believed in it. But again, that stuff takes money, but more than money, it also just takes 
you know, you got to show up and you've got to do these things. You've got to yeah. sort of hit up your local contribute. officials and hit up your senators and congressmen. Let them know you're there and that you vote. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I was thinking about this a lot. I, I listened to uh, I thought you did a great interview with Jan on um, on the energy wake up back in, I think, March, April time frame. Um, and I was thinking through that uh, on a run recently and it occurred to me, wow, you know, I, I mean, I'm from South Carolina. I live here in North Carolina. South Carolina's uh, kind of front of mind for a lot of folks now. It wasn't always. Uh, yes. What, what advice, and Standard, Standard has an operation in South Carolina, as I understand. What advice yeah. might you give to the industry at large in South Carolina as an example of what we could be doing to bring solar to the forefront? Well, I mean, you know, going back on my early experience at Standard Solar, I mean, you know, when I joined Standard in 2007, it was a three-person company, and there weren't any incentives on the East Coast. And there were certainly, I mean, there was a little bit in New Jersey. New Jersey had started, but there really wasn't anything in D.C., Maryland, or Virginia where we were based. And I think I was at Standard Solar about six weeks before I did my first lobbying in the Maryland legislature. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're in a place like South Carolina, uh, where, you know, solar is beginning to take off, and I mean, they, they've made remarkable advances in the last year or 18 months, but some of the stuff that you've got to do is go out and plead your case. And I think pleading your case means getting in with your local solar organization. I mean, in some cases, it could be SIA. I know in the, in the D.C. area, it's MDV SIA, which is one of the leading uh, uh, yeah. solar region, I mean, SIA regional organizations. But if you're down in South Carolina, find out who it is, join it, and work with them to do what you've got to do to make it happen. The other thing that you find out when you do this is you're dealing with um, other people that are in the solar business. They may become customers of yours. You may, they may be able to be partners of yours on projects and things like that. So it's not like you're a, a lone missionary by yourself. You're going to find other people that are doing this. But you really have to sort of get out and do that sort of thing. Plus, yeah. you know... You know, we, you've got to do your own, some of your own press. Just, you know, just local newspapers and local, you know, media outlets, whether they're digital or whatever, uh, they're looking for content. And if you're, it may be a small project in your mind compared to something that, you know, Standard Solar or uh, some utility scale solar developers doing, but for your local community, it's a big deal. And, you yeah. know, uh, you, get, you get your name out there. Maybe you get another customer out of it or another few customers. But you've got to start that sort of stuff. And a lot of people, they don't have it in their DNA. But, <laughs> you know, you can, you can develop it, believe me. Absolutely. And, and I think on the East Coast, really, nobody does it better than Standard. You guys are really great at customer and, and public engagement. And certainly, as you said, like kind of, kind of tooting your own horn at times when, the, when it's necessary and doing it in a way that is humble. You know, for, what it, for, for those listening who are in South Carolina, I'd encourage you to reach out to Brett Sowers at Southern Current. He's also the chairman for South Carolina Solar Business Alliance. I, I've never actually met Brett other than virtually, but I know the Southern Current guys, and they are uh, very actively involved in helping South Carolina grow uh, as a market. And, you know, along with Standard and, and several other companies, they're making a big dent, making an effort 
So reach out to Brett Sowers, S-O-W-E-R-S, on LinkedIn. He's at Southern Current and also the South Carolina Solar Business Alliance. Well, Standard has been a mainstay in the Northeast solar industry for over a decade uh, at a time where a lot of other companies have come and gone. I'd love to hear from your perspective as the CEO how you thought about growing your team. What kind of people do you look for when you're trying to grow a company from a three-person uh, startup to you know one of the more one of the more uh, significant players in the industry? Well, I guess I start by saying that the first thing that we did at Standard, and this was before I got there. I mean, I was involved in it, but I was doing it uh, when I was investigating solar, and that was we decided we had to get somebody who was doing install stuff. So we were looking at uh, little companies in, uh, in the D.C. area that had actually been doing some solar. And we found a guy named Lee Bristol. Lee had oh, a yeah. company. Yeah, we, we, Lee had a company called LBA, Lee Bristol and Associates. They did solar on weekends. Lee is a very smart guy. He went as an undergraduate degree in aeronautical engineering from MIT. So, I mean, he is smart. So we got those, and we, we actually got out and started doing stuff. You can't just... Uh, you know, try and promote yourself and raise all kinds of money because you're going to run out of money. And if you want to raise more money, you, you, you know, you've got to at least have some examples of what you're doing. So right. from the get-go, we were looking for smart people who were dedicated to the cause of solar. And another good example of that is our director of engineering, C.J. Colavito. And C.J. Has, has been with us since 2008. And when I hired him in 2008, he was obviously very smart. He had a degree from a very good engineering school. But what really got him through the door was the fact that on his resume, he highlighted that he and his wife had, another engineer, had both quit their jobs about a year and a half previously and had gone to work to volunteer in a village in Nicaragua where they mm. were making solar panels out of reject solar cells and using wow. them in the village and other areas and also doing solar cookers. So they were serious about solar. And so, you know, and we hired CJ, and he's one of the best hires I ever made at Standard Solar. CJ is terrific. Oh, wow. And then, you know, now I would say we still, val we still look for smart people. We look for people who are team players, and we tend to look for, I guess, specific experience as well as people who are smart team players. And we've always highly valued military experience as well. And I mean, the guy that took over from me as CEO last fall, uh, Scott Wider, Scott's a former helicopter pilot, mm -hmm. our uh, VP in charge of uh, operations is uh, another uh, military guy. And we've got, you know, military guys all over the organization. Well, we had one, one woman vet, but she was an installer and she, she decided that uh, she didn't want to be an installer anymore. But, you know, you look for people uh, who have specific experience now, and it's because we're an older, more experienced company. We also take interns. I mean, we have a couple of interns every summer. Sometimes we have them during the, the year as well, and we've hired, oh gosh, several people who started out with us as interns. So we, but we, generally speaking, we look for smart people that, that do well in groups. That's, that's what we look for. And I think, you know, one of the things you've got to do uh, in terms of, um, you know, a winning formula is you've got to figure out where your industry's going and what you need to do to position your com company to take advantage of what's coming. And, you know, I've always appreciated the role that government played in solar. And in the 70s and early 80s when I was in the solar biz, 
I was lobbying for increased, you know, DOE budgets for solar. And when I joined Standard Solar, um, as I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, I was lobbying for incentives in the, incentives in the Maryland legislature within a month. And, you know, you, you, you have to figure out, and that's one of the places where you figure out, you know, what, was, what you need to get to the next level. And we decided, oh gosh, probably 15, 18 months ago, that, uh, you know, Standard Solar was frustrated in their, their business model because, you know, we, were, we started life as a residential developer and then, you know, we started a commercial division and our division took off. And so we were a, an EPC, we were an EPC contractor. So we would develop projects and then we would get, do all of the work, all the engineering and design work. We'd win the project. And then we had to go looking for financing, which is challenging to say the least. And we dealt with a lot of the, uh, the leading you know, people who are finance solar projects. And you know, as an EPC, they tend to screw you as much as they can, which maybe if I was in their position, I'd do the same thing, I don't know. But it, it was very frustrating. So we decided we needed a big balance sheet partner. And that's when we, went, you know, we decided to go looking around for who might be a good person to partner up with or to sell to. And so we just, you know, we just accomplished that earlier this spring, and uh, we're very happy with uh, our, our new corporate parent, Gazmetro, which is a Canadian company in the natural gas transmission and distribution business. But they've got a $7 billion balance sheet. Now we can finance our own projects, and we're looking to finance projects for other solar developers and other EPC contractors, some of whom have had the same previous experiences that we've had. So that's, again, you got, you got to figure out what your business needs and go for it. I really appreciate that. I was going to bring up the acquisition. Congrats on the recent balance sheet expansion. That's, uh, that's a really powerful move for you guys, and Guys Metro should be uh, a great partner. And I, I understand that you're going to continue operating independently as Standard Solar. Yeah, we're operating independently, and Gaz also has other, you know, about half of their assets are in the United States. Uh, they also own what I think is the most progressive utility in the United States, which is Green Mountain Power up in Vermont. And Green Mountain, you know, they're, they're even doing battery storage for residential folks, and they will work with you to get you off the grid if you want to be off the grid. I mean, if you're on some line that they have difficulty servicing or something like that, they're even putting people off grid and helping them go off the grid with battery storage. So they're a very progressive utility. I would be, I wish you would have more like that in the very United cool. States. Very cool. Well, look, I want to play a quick game called hot or not, and then we'll jump back into a few more questions I have for you. Sure. If, uh, if that's all right. So I'll uh, name a specific topic or market and you can spend 30, 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or not and why. Of course, lukewarm is always a respectable answer. So we'll go in to begin with on the topic of distributed storage. Oh, distributed storage is definitely hot. I mean, you know, we did our first solar microgrid about three years ago where we just uh, took a couple of uh, floors of an office building that was uh, owned by a national real estate developer and took it off grid with uh, battery storage on site. And that was our first taste of it. We've also done uh, a bunch of residential storage stuff. We've done some storage stuff with the local uh, utility Pepco. So we are very excited about uh, about distributed storage. 
Mm, any challenges in particular that the storage still hasn't been able to uh, address? Well, I think the first challenge for the real wide-scale implementation of solar is the same thing that was hitting the solar industry 10 years ago, and that is cost. And, mm -hmm. you know, solar solved that by, uh, in a large part, by the reductions in the costs of uh, polycrystal and silicon, which dropped, like, by, I think, 90%. Uh, back in the 07, 08, 09 re area. And so yeah. we've got to see that. And I you know there are a couple of competing technologies going forward, and there's a lot of research being done in solar, and we're going to see it. I'm very excited to see what's going to happen with, uh, with Tesla stores projects, among others. Yeah, I, actually, as an aside, I'm, I'm curious. I'm pondering the, the bellwethers of maturing industry. Obviously, the storage industry is... Uh, is really rather immature. A lot of disparate actors and a lot of different technologies, kind of like what you would, what we saw in the kind of 2007 to 2011 timeframe, in particular with the battle between mono and poly, and not just mono and yep. poly, but thin film. And obviously, the one who was able to, which ultimately ended up being you know, crystalline silicon and, and in particular poly, that that technology being able to to drastically reduce pricing was the decider, much like VHS and Betamax, of which technology everyone sort of standardized around. Uh, I, I'm curious to know from your perspective, uh, looking across the broader industry, if you have a couple of winners in mind that you think the industry might uh, begin to consolidate around. You've got lithium and vanadium, we've got all types of different storage technology. What do you see on the, on the, around, the, around the corner here on like, how that evolves? Well, you know, I, I think that in the near term, it's going to be lithium ion and just because they're in first place at the moment. But, you know, you look at some of these flow battery technologies and other things that are that are potentially there. And I know we've been approached by some people f with some things that are, aren't really at, 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 at the market yet. And mm -hmm. you just don't know. I mean, at this point, I don't think we really know. I think if you can make uh, a project work now with uh, with with lithium ion. Go for it, but because uh, you need to develop the systems expertise as well as just having a cheap battery. And you can, if you can make a project work now, and you're using it with a, you know, uh, a type of battery that gets becomes obsolescent in several years. You know, so what? You've got the systems experience. You can always swap out batteries and use the new technology the next time you've got one of these projects. Very, very interesting perspective. All right. So moving on with hot or not, what about the utility scale solar market? Well, the utility-scale solar market is, uh, I would say, I mean, you know, it is the most developed of any of the solar markets. And you see, of course, a lot of it is out west where land is really cheap and sunshine is rather plentiful. But you're starting to see it other places as well. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's growing uh, throughout the mid-Atlantic and the northeast now. Uh, so I think there's plenty of upside that's still available to utility scale solar and you know also they they can they're probably in the best shape of any if we have some adverse decision um, uh, around the section 201 trade case because companies like first solar which has a terrific product uh, for utility scale solar is not going to be impacted by this at all whereas just about every other company and every other you know market segment is going to be absolutely there are, I guess the topic is kind of the Sun Edison, Solar City, Vivint, kind of national installation and finance companies, not unlike what standard is becoming. Hot or not? 
Uh, you got to give it mixed reviews. I mean, I think that um, Solar City and Vivint sort of made their name and have the bulk of their business in residential in residential leasing. And as leasing, or I mean, as solar residential solar becomes more accepted by local banks with uh, you know low interest rates and things like that, you're going to you're going to see more and more. Uh, individual customers making the decision to buy the system and own it rather than lease it, because you know when you buy it, you got the tax credit yourself, uh, and you don't, and you you know you take advantage of the increases in cost of power, assuming you have an increase in the cost of power. And right now, you don't have that. I mean, the advantage that they've had and the advantage that they enjoyed for a number of years is just the fact that. Uh, you know, you could uh, you could structure uh, a lease deal, a residential lease deal, um, at a price that's less than what people were paying now. So it's a good deal, but um, I don't think that that that's going to hold. You know, going forward, regarding SunEd, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily the business model that went wrong. I think maybe they were trying to do too many things and grew too fast and had crazy management structures and everything else that uh, they just couldn't make the thing work. Um, you know, they, they pioneered a lot of stuff. I know when, you know, Jigger was there when he got it started with a couple of other folks, they, did, they pioneered the first PPA. So they were way out in front of a lot of things. But, you know, now there are a lot of people doing, including Standard Solar, doing what Sun Edison did in the past. So I think it's going to hold, but uh, yeah. boy, Sun Edison is just the wrong model in terms of the way, way it worked out. I think a lot of us would agree with that. And having been a channel partner for Sun Edison, my question to you, and also understanding that sort of channel, channel partnership is one of the new standard models uh, of expansion, my question to you would be, how, how will you do the channel partnership differently than Sun Edison and some of their cohorts that perhaps have soured the experience for installers across the nation? Well, as someone who developed a lot of projects and got them financed with Sun Edison, I was just thankful that uh, we had managed to get paid before they went bankrupt. Uh, and again, I think their biggest problem, their biggest problem was access to financing in the long run. And, you know, from a standard solar standpoint, uh, I, we're not going to see that just because of the relationship we have and the sort of company that, that Gaz Metro is. It's a stable utility that generates a lot of cash flow every year. They have continuing tax appetite. They want to be, you know, more uh, invested in the American solar business, I mean, as an owner of projects. So I think we're going to be okay. But, uh, you know, you've got to just watch who your partner is. If you're uh, you know, I mean, developers, solar developers, in a certain sense, you can be like a one-man band and develop a solar project, but you need to have a financial partner. And if it's not Sun Edison, it's got to be someone else. So the the need for uh, the financing partner is not going to go away. I mean, and I don't think that... Um, uh, solar developers at this point have much in the way of options other than somebody else who can provide them with capital, who has a need for tax equity. And, you know, we like standard solar, but we're certainly not the only one doing that. Yeah, well, it, you've certainly positioned yourselves extremely well, certainly considering what, what I expect to be a large growth curve in the commercial solar space in the, in the years to come.
So you know, one of the impediments to that and the next topic on hot or not is the utility relationship with regard to distributed generation. Would you say that's hot or not? How do you feel about oh, that? Oh, I think that the utility <laughs> relationship with solar in general is pretty hot. Mm -hmm. um, certain states, it's a little mixed on the residential side. But, uh, no, we have seen that uh, uh, I think many utilities are now recognizing that solar is going to be a valuable part of their generation mix. And so you're, you're seeing a lot more interest than you ever did before. And right. you're seeing interest both uh, with utilities wanting to own the solar themselves, which we would much rather uh, make sure that they have competition for, uh, for ownership. Uh, of course, that's where, you know, we put stuff on our own balance sheet. But, um, you know, when I guess it was 2013 or 2014 when the Edison Electric Institute came out with that report that said that uh, distributed generation solar is a threat to the utility business model. I mean, right. some people took notice and wanted to fight like crazy against solar. Others said, we got to look at this and maybe we ought to partner or develop our own solar resources. So you're seeing that. And I mean, you've got a, I guess you have a distribution, normal distribution curve of utilities and the ones that are pro-solar, I think they're tending more towards the mean and uh, the ones that are anti-solar are sort of getting forced to the margin. So I think we're just going to see more of that. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I definitely think uh, what I'm seeing that I find really compelling are the number of rural electric cooperatives trending towards utilization of community solar as a model for engagement with their ratepayers, and, yes. uh, and and also and, and so and sort of inviting solar into the energy mix. Yeah, I would say that on, on uh, you know co-ops, we did our first project with a co-op about 10 years ago. I mean, now nah, it was probably eight yeah. years ago. And, you know, we've, we've done them now in multiple states, mm -hmm. you know, from New Jersey, from, uh, yeah, from New Mexico to New Jersey, I guess I'd say, and a lot of places in between. So, yeah, you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing a lot more of that. And the community solar is the most recent evidence of that. And that is because a lot of these folks want solar and they cannot uh, get it any other way than community solar. And, you know, solar companies and increasingly co-ops are more than happy to provide them with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the last point of hot or not, and that is U.S. renewable policy in the Trump era. Well, I think we were all shell-shocked. A lot of us were shell-shocked when uh, President Trump uh, was elected last November. I think that, you know, when you look back on it, we all felt that uh, we had this big push, you know, two years ago to get the investment tax credit extended then, uh, you know, we negotiated for a ramp down and it was going to be down to 10 percent by the end of 2021. But then the clean power plan was going to start up in 2022. And so that would give us a ramp, you know, with some uh, other sorts of uh, requirements that would uh, be beneficial to people doing solar. So w I thought we were in pretty good shape and a lot of people did. But uh, now with uh, President Trump, you know, we've got a, a climate denier. Uh, running the um, EPA and the clean power plan is is either completely done with or certainly on the ropes and may well be done. You've got the DOE budget that has been slashed substantially for, for solar and a variety of other things. So, I mean, we've got some real challenges. Plus, we have the issue of tax reform. And I'm fairly optimistic that we're going to keep the ITC through tax reform. And the reason that I say that is because... Um, 
you know, the, it, it already has a sunset. It's set to end in 2021. So if you're trying to push through right. something that is a huge change to the, you know, the overall tax system in the United States, you're not going to spend political capital um, fighting for something that's going to go away anyway. You've got other battles to fight. So I think we're, I think we're going to be okay on that. I think the challenge that we've got as an industry is we've got to convince President Trump that solar is here to stay and it's going to you know, be a valuable part of the energy mix going forward. Absolutely, absolutely. And as we mentioned earlier, we'll certainly link to that blog post that you did, which is quite good at discussing uh, the, the, the various positions on this trade case and uh, really appreciate your insight there, certainly as someone who... Uh, who is in, both inside the Beltway, but also inside the action here at SIA. You know, one, I guess one last question would be if, uh, if there is something that, regarding specifically the 201, that our audience could do to help, uh, you know, to help ensure that we don't really feel this, the, the, what are probably the negative ramifications of this, uh, of this moving forward, how, how could we help? What could we do to take action? Well, I think you should go to the website at SIA. And it's, you know, it's just Google SIA. You'll find their website. And on the front, on the, the landing page of it, there is a link to a site where you can donate money mm-hmm. and also where you can actually get involved in doing work. One of the things that we were very successful with uh, uh, in the ITC extension was getting local people to sway local their local congressmen and senators. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we've got to do the same thing here. That, that's what we've got to do. But one of the big things is also money yeah. because, you know, we, you know, we're being outspent dramatically uh, on this. And I think we've got the public on our side. And I think we just have to sort of get, get going and get uh, people to understand what's really happening here because it would be a real shame if we end up, you know, SIA estimated we'd lose 88,000 uh, jobs if this went through. And, and I think they're, they're sort of you know, optimistic with only losing that few but uh, that's that's where it looks right now. Mm. That uh, that's a scary proposition. Well, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, your perspective is is certainly uh, in tune, and we make a call out to you, Suncast listeners, and those of you who uh, care about seeing our industry continue to thrive as we wrap up this hot or not section. Just one more uh, encouragement: go to the SIA website. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, and uh, do what you can, both monetarily. And with your social capital, reach out to your representatives. We can do everything within our power to ensure that we're creating a voice to be heard for those who actually are keeping their solar jobs and and thriving in in the face of this trade case. Well, Tony, you've been a part of some you know pretty historic growth, not just in the solar market, but within uh, a specific company that's contributing to this the rise of you know the modern industrial sort of. Uh, a vision for solar replacing fossil fuels. But I'm sure you, like many, believe that this is just the beginning for us, and we're about to see uh, massive improvements in with regards to business models and innovation around solar. I'd love to know what you see as the next frontier, so to speak. You know, solar is becoming a standard, not just an ancillary service to utility distribution and generation. You know, what corners are you looking around? What do you think solar entrepreneurs should be looking at as the next wave? Well, I think the next wave, and maybe it's because it's the segment that we're in, is distributed generation. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that um, what we're going to see with battery storage, and I'm I might be more optimistic than a lot of people on the potential for for storage, right? I mean, in the fairly near term, 
you know, if you look back um, at what happened to the solar module pricing as a result of some investments around getting polysilicon production to scale, I mean, that is one, was one of the huge drivers that drove down the, the cost of PV in, you know, 2009 through 2011, 2012, uh -huh. and then, then continuing. And we're, we're going to start to see huge increases in production of battery technologies. And, I, you know, I think lithium-ion is going to be around for a while. I think we're going to start seeing that uh, becoming um, more common, in, especially in distributed generation applications uh, than, than we've seen so far. And then we've got some other technologies, flow batteries and some other things that have a lot of, you know, capital behind them that are trying to sort of get a longer-term market share in the battery business. But, you know, one of the things that Standard Solar is doing, and I'm, we're certainly not alone in this, is we are getting our experience now uh, uh, in battery storage. And, you know, if you get the systems experience and you know how these things work and you know where they make money and where they make uh, technical and economic sense, uh, then if you get a cheaper battery, great. You're, mm -hmm. you're just going to be expanding the market there. But I think the real shift is going to be battery storage, and it's going to be battery storage in decentralized applications. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, a lot. I think uh, a, a consensus around uh, those like yourself who have grown companies and are starting uh, either second phases of those companies or new companies in the space are really looking at storage and how it's going to disrupt the, the current DG uh, energy model for not just the United States, but probably the world. You know, I would love to, uh, if we kind of look back over uh, your, uh, your history and career, and certainly with regard to standard and growing it to the level that you've helped get it today, uh, I, is there anything in 2017 that you'd do differently at standard? Uh, and sort of along the lines of that, what did growing standard as a company and, and getting, having the successful exit or, or acquisition with Gas Metro teach you about uh, building a successful solar company. Okay. Well, I, I, I think for starters, if it was if we're starting standard solar all over again, the one thing that I would do would be to think bigger. I also, uh, you know, it, it's hard in those days when there were like no incentives to speak of on the East Coast, and you you want to think really big, and so I don't think we thought big enough, and I would be more circumspect about who we took on as partners in the early years. And, and this is just based on our specific experience, but we outgrew our initial investors pretty fast. Uh, but the small you know, private equity firm that provided our first real serious investment, they didn't want to get diluted. And you know, they, were, they had a majority ownership, so you, you, yeah. you, know, you gotta watch what you do when you do that. So we ended up pursuing several investment schemes that took time, and by time, I mean over the course of years, cost money, and ultimately didn't work right. because we weren't sufficiently capitalized. And I would not do that again. I mean, I absolutely would not do that again. And I think in terms of growing standard solar, one of the things that taught me was that um, you, you've got to look at your industry honestly and figure out how what's going to work to really make your business hum. And when you think about a lot of the aspects of solar, they're essentially, it's a low margin business. I mean, manufacturing is certainly, solar manufacturing certainly low margins. And if you want to be successful beyond a small area as, a, as yeah. an installer or developer, you've got to get to scale. 
and you know some segments scale much better than other segments and uh you know i think that the benefits of scale at the resi level they're now tough i mean uh solar city and vivent uh, some of the companies that were pursuing leases were able to scale based on the financial benefits but now that um um you know solar residential solar is becoming sort of more familiar to bankers and others and people can get loans to do their own systems uh more readily than they could in the past it's getting harder to do the leases and i think that it's going to be a struggle for solar city vivint and other folks that just absolutely emphasize leasing to uh, to make a go of it so i think that's going to be a challenge so uh that'd be one thing i also think that you know you should be aware of what your competition is doing and pick and choose who you want to emulate and who you want to not emulate and don't be reluctant to copy what works in other places. And, you know, this seems obvious, but, you know, the NIH or the not invented here syndrome holes in solar, you know, as well as a lot of other things. And the other real lesson that I learned was to the extent you can, uh-huh. monitor your partners and suppliers' finances. And when you hear rumors or you see your receivables getting pushed out 90 days and beyond, be very wa- wary. Right. Because the PV industry, it's still on the solar coaster. Yeah. And a lot of people can get stuck if a partner or supplier goes out of business. And we were fortunate to be fully paid out when our partner, Sun Edison, went bankrupt. But it was a close question. And, you know, if you look at Seneva's bankruptcy filings, you can see that a lot of people are owed money by them, and they're not going to get it. So, I mean, those are just some of the things that I learned. Yeah, I've got a couple follow-up questions, but you actually, uh, I want to follow on. I had a question I was going to skip here, uh, but you you tagged right into it so perfectly. I, I, I am you know, curious about the whole notion of what to do when the inevitable happens in the solar industry, because it's an immature uh, uh, industry, as you put it, in adolescence still. And, uh, you know, you've seen a lot of companies go, particularly the vendors, right? I mean, I know that you guys did a lot of 10K. And uh, as a leader of a company, how do you mitigate the inherent risk of using products made by companies that may or may not be around in five years, let alone 30? Like, what do you do when the inevitable happens and, you know, 10K or SatCon or a bunch of Ceneva panels are out there that you've got a service or, 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 you know, how do you handle that? Boy, that's a good question. And I, you know... Uh, I, I really felt bad about 10K. They had a product that um, that we loved in a lot of ways. And, you know, where we used 10K was in high-density urban environments. And, you know, we've done projects in New York City and in downtown D.C. and places like that where, you know, power output is at a premium because your roof yeah. space is limited. And, and 10K had a very good product product for that. And I think we were, when they got the investment, I think it was from Goldman Sachs, we thought, these guys are solid. These guys are good to go. Oh, so and yep. I think we were surprised as anyone else when uh, when that happened. And I think that, you know, what we've done uh, historically is we've always tried to work with tier one solar module makers mm-hmm. to minimize the potential of problems happening, uh, either financial or with the quality of the product itself. But, you know, stuff happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So we've always purchased spares of the particular modules that we're using on a specific project. And we try to sort of minimize the range of uh, modules that we use. 
And so far, we haven't run out of spares, though I will say we had to scramble for product uh, on some of our 10K deals. Uh -huh, I'm but sure. that's what you got to do is you, you, you've got to sort of budget some spares. So you just have a warehouse or somewhere that you store that? Just We've got a warehouse. Um, yeah, we do. <laughs> well, now, I, I'll tell you why I'm chuckling. I don't know if you want to include this, but I'll just tell you this quick yeah. story. Um, you know, we did the roof of the Department of Energy headquarters in 2008. That was the first real project we did, you know, commercial project. It was 205 kW, which at that time was the largest solar installation between New Jersey and Central Florida. Wow. So it was big. Cool. And, uh, you know, we, we, we did this. And um, part of it was we did the, the array. They also had an area for, like, demonstrations of advanced technologies that were in pr production but were not really um, – widely available commercially yet so we did this and then about a year later they asked us to take one out and put in some or two years later put in some cylinder uh -huh. modules so they give us four modules and which is you know that was the size it was just a little test thing it was it was not it was grounded i mean they just had a monitor on it to see right. what the output was so we do this we go down there to do this installation and i was going to drop by later because this wasn't going to take that long to do so I go down later, I get up on the roof, there's nobody mm -hmm. there. And, I, and there's no modules there. So I call up our guy and I say, what happened? And they had four modules delivered. One of them was broken oh, in shipment. And the cylindra guy said, you know, we have too much of that. We get a lot <laughs> of these broken in shipment. And then he stepped on another one. So there were two of the four were broken right out of the box. So they had to ship us more modules. Uh, and we put these two in our warehouse. And they went before. bankrupt before they could ship us any more modules. So we have two Cylindra modules somewhere oh, in our man. warehouse. You're, not, you're probably not the only one. <laughs> no, I don't think we are. I don't. Well, think we are. Uh, well, you know, you've you've had a lot of uh, you've had a lot of experience. So one of the things I wanted to circle back on, you mentioned earlier that if you want to be successful, you got to scale. And I think there's certainly different definitions of scales. And I, I would argue that scale is defined differently for resi versus commercial. But do you have a definition that you would ascribe to what scale means for the solar industry? Boy, I don't know if you can you can sort of have one definition of scale for the solar industry. I mean, when I think about um, uh, about distributed generation, mm -hmm. commercial DG, which is what we do, we tend to look at our market. Well, we'll go anywhere up to. 25 megawatts because that's the you get you get involved with the FERC when you get above 25 megawatts But really our sweet spot is between 1 and 10 and we try to do a lot of the same sorts of projects so we can minimize time on design and and issues like that I mean every design is a little bit different But to the extent you can you've got to you've got to sort of centralize around a specific size and what we've really done lots and lots of are mm -hmm. are in that range one to ten megawatts and I would say That's mostly probably two right. to five so you just worry about scale and I mean you worry about size and I guess with uh, with resi I mean you've got to sort of try and do the same thing uh, but it's hard to scale because you don't I mean you've got to send people out mm -hmm. with a truck to every That's job of, yeah yeah resi's a totally different animal I agree and it's a t it's a different animal, and I think you know utility scale. Well, that's 
that's where you're re dealing with very big EPC contractors. Your customer is the utility. You've got some very strict requirements as to what the quality of those is going to be. But again, they're so big that they're, they're, you know, you've got to be at scale as an organization to do it, but you've got to be used to working with them. And you know, we wouldn't even qualify for uh, a lot of the, we can't do the medium voltage and high voltage right, right. Uh, engineering that's needed. We, we'd have to sort of mm -hmm. add that on, but you know, we can do anything, we, as I said, we can do anything up to 25 megawatts. I love it. I love, those are, these are uh, great insights. I didn't know that uh, after 25, and I've been in the utility industry, but after 25 is uh, you deal with FERC. That's good insight. Hey, yeah. what, what, uh, what would you say are some key lessons or takeaways from the, the mentors in your life or career that have helped you and that you would pass along to others coming along behind you? Well, gosh. Um, well, my first real boss was this, I mentioned this Hungarian physicist, Joseph Lindmeier. Mm. And Joseph was a brilliant man, and he came up with a number of solar innovations at SolarX, but he always credited other members of the team and praised innovation and hard work. Mm. And I always try to give other people credit, you know, when credit is due. And Joseph also gave me the room to do what I was good at. I mean, mm -hmm. he didn't try to micromanage me. He freely admitted he knew nothing about how to do uh, finance and government relations and, you know, write. I mean, mm -hmm. it, English was not even his first language. So, I mean, I wrote a lot of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, I, this is stuff that I was good at. And, you know, so I really do try not to micromanage. Because, you know, you, you might miss the forest when you're worried about the individual trees. And it's, it's, it's your job to just find good people to worry about specific aspects of your mm -hmm. business. And don't try and micromanage. I mean, you got to do it when you're a raw startup. And, boy, I did a lot of different things when I, and this was a three-person organization as opposed to when it's a hundred-person organization. Yeah. I love that answer. There's a guy uh, running a, a really successful Mexican uh, startup called Galt Energy, Jose Zambrano, who was on the show. And he said something really similar. Uh, and he said, you got to hire good people and get out of the way. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And as a leader, you know, that just, that really is uh, it's great advice, and it's advice that's that's freely and commonly given, and seldom taken, <laughs> right? Especially as especially as entrepreneurs, <laughs> right. because as an entrepreneur, I mean, why is it that most entrepreneurs don't become the CEOs of their companies when they're over 100, 150 employees? Because they're the kind of person who can't let go of the details, and. Yeah, yeah. That's and, right. And that's why, frankly, guys like you were brought in at, at two to three employees or five. I mean, I think that was a really wise decision for Standard to bring someone like you in as the CEO that that early in their growth, you know, without getting mired in the in the executive conundrum. Yeah, I think it was also a fortuitous <laughs> development for both of us. I was looking for something new to do. I wanted to get back into solar, and here's this little company that um, – uh, really needed a shot in the arm, and I knew exactly what to do. So it yeah. just worked out well for both of us. I love it. It reminds me of another guest as well, uh, Andy Bendia, uh, who started Segura International down in Haiti. He's got a company called Segura Solar. You probably know in Virginia. And uh, they've been subcontractors with us. We're actually jointly proposing on some stuff right now. Yeah. So yeah, we know Segura. And when they brought in their new CEO, I mean, gosh, what a difference it made in that company, right? For Andy to let someone focus on being the CEO. My, you know, the, the question I had coming up for you, this actually is one of the answers I probably would give for this, and I do give for this. Uh, and the question is, what are the common pitfalls or time wasters that you see developers and entrepreneurs consistently doing that they should stop doing? Oh, I got a good one there. 
you know, one of the things that we have said around here for a while, and we don't always follow it, but we absolutely try to, and that is that time kills mm. all deals. And if you're working on a project or you're trying to get a financial partner and the deal drags on and on, don't be afraid to cut right. the string because it's probably going to end badly anyway. You should find something new to work on. And, you know, sometimes if you just cut the string, you may be forcing the issue. And, uh, you know, at the brink, you might find uh, what you were looking for all along because you're forcing the other side to make a decision as well. So I would say just remember that time kills all deals and uh, get your deals done or move on. I love it. Thank you so much for that. Actually, it's one of the things I say the most often. And that's one of the things I share that I learned from a mentor. Time kills all deals. And it's so, so true. Well, you know, I know that, Tony, you're uh, an avid learner and uh, mentor. Uh, is there any book that's influenced you or that you've given away a lot and I'd love to hear why it's influenced you and, and what how it's helped sort of change your perspective on the world oh boy well in terms of books <laughs> I've given away a lot uh, they're solar books and I mean you know one of them when we were uh, earlier in uh, the life of standard solar we gave away a lot of books by standard solar's founder Neville Williams and he's got one mm. that came out just a couple of years ago about I think it's called Sun Power and it's how inner energy from the sun is changing the world. And, you know, Neville mm. is a, a thoughtful journalist. He's an intrepid traveler. He was a war correspondent in Vietnam. I know once he rode a motorcycle from Cairo to Cape Town. I mean, he's pretty much a lunatic, wow. but a very thoughtful guy. <laughs> he also founded two... Uh, two uh, non, non-profit entities that, were, that are solar-related. But, you know, Neville's books are great. Lately, I've given away several copies of another solar book by a guy named John Perlin, P-E-R-L-I-N. And his book is called Let It Shine. And it's the story of solar, but, you know, from, you know, prehistory on up. And I bet that yeah. you didn't know that the first rooftop array in the world was installed in Manhattan on the Lower East Side oh, wow. by some guy named Fritz. I think I don't know if that was his first name or his last name, I forget. And it wasn't wow. silicon-based. It was selenium-based. It generated about 50 watts of power at full sun. And there's a photo wow. of it in the book. And, you know, when I looked at the book, and I haven't looked at it in, oh, close to a year now, I bet. But the array was like 10 by 20 or something like that. So, and it had 50 watts. So it wasn't much power, but it was 130 years ago. But there's all sorts wow. of fascinating stuff about solar. And if you're interested in solar at all, this book, Perlin's book, is a, is a good book. That you sounds know, in fascinating. In terms of stuff that's influenced me or, you know, positive change in me, yeah, I don't really don't have a book that's specific book that springs to mind. But I've always tried to be well-read on a variety of subjects. And on business stuff, I read the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post every day. And oh, wow. I keep up with a number of solar trade journals. Now, you know, when I say I read them, I scan them for stuff that's of import to solar, uh, you know, and I also read stuff that I'm interested in. And then, but another thing I do about once a month, I try to do it once a month. I try to do something outside of my specific business focus. And since I live in D.C., this could involve attending a lecture at the Smithsonian or the Center for American Progress, which is certainly on the left, the Heritage Foundation, which is certainly not on the left, uh, or the museum. And, you know, most of this stuff is free. So uh, what you're really investing is a little time. Mm -hmm. And I find it a good way to stretch my mind 
And I've also made some interesting personal and professional friendships that have lasted a long time. So I would say, you know, just get outside of your comfort zone and outside of, so you can't do it much, but I think you should try and do that because I think it's sort of good for you in a lot of ways. I love it. Get outside your bubble. Well, I always ask, what one thing do you consistently do that yields the greatest impact or results in your personal or professional life? Hmm. Well, I, I try to be mm -hmm. truthful to myself and to the people around me. And I think in business, you know, one, you've got to be straightforward and honest and look at a business deal or another proposition, you know, from obviously from your own point of view, but also from the, the yeah. point of view on the other side of the table and try to build long-term relationships. Don't just go for the one and done business deals. And I think this has paid dividends in, in my life, both personally and professionally. And certainly, you know, Standard Solar is looking for long-term relationships. We're not just trying to sort of go in, screw an EPC contractor, make a little money on a project and get going. We want to work with people for the long term. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, appreciate that and it's certainly valued in the marketplace. Tony, is there a place that folks can find you if they want to engage with you? Um, they can send me an email. Okay. What's that email? Tony, T-O-N-Y dot Clifford, C-L-I-F-F-O-R-D at standardsolar.com. Excellent. Are you active on uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn? I'm active on LinkedIn, and, you know, I, I write a bunch of blogs, and I, yeah, I do stuff. You, you can find me on LinkedIn for sure. Okay, and your blog is always syndicated on Standard Solar Yes, site, correct? absolutely. Excellent, excellent. Well, Tony, we always end with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Boy, I think we've already covered it. What I'm seeing <laughs> in my crystal ball is battery storage. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, it's going to be economic in less time than many people think. And um, it's, it's going to disrupt the truly disrupt the uh, utility business model because there's going to be a lot of battery storage at the uh, basically at the well some at the transmission level but mainly at the distribution level in places all over the country and you're you know i think there have been some factors pushing this but when you start thinking about well on the east coast it's what uh, superstorm sandy did a few years ago right. when uh, you know most of new york was out of power and the jersey shore parts of it were out of power for months Whereas, meanwhile, we did projects on the Jersey Shore that worked fine, but they weren't really working uh, after the storm because the, you know, we didn't have the electrical grid and we didn't have battery storage with them. So, I mean, I'm really looking forward to battery storage. And I think it's, you know, we're going to see major opportunities in all aspects of distributed generation in the next three to five years. And it's going to be hardware, it's going to be software, it's going to be system stuff. Uh, and it's all because we're going to have battery storage that's economical and it works well with solar. And I just can't wait to see it all happen. Mm, fantastic. And when all of that does come to pass, we'll have you back on the show to talk about it and how you guys are incorporating it into the division of God's Metro that is Standard Solar. Tony, thank you so much. You're an inspiration and a leader in this industry, and we're honored to have you on Suncast. Nico, it was great talking with you. Thank you very much. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. 
perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.